Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. The Toronto Raptors did it. They're on the way to the NBA championship. You'll hear Ron Foxcroft, who refereed NCAA Division I basketball, the only Canadian to do so, and is listed among the world's top 50 sports officials on what Fox is looking for in the championship, both from the officials and, of course, from the players. John and Sally Letts are the parents of Jack Letts. He has been dubbed Jihadi Jack, and they, the parents, are charged with criminally funding terrorists because they sent their son money in Syria. I interviewed John Letts. You'll hear part of that interview. The Brexit chaos. Wow, another prime minister is going to lose that job. We'll be speaking with Alan Sked. He is a professor emeritus at the London School of Economics and also the founder of UKIP, the political party that was responsible for Brexit. Chronic pain. Two patients, one American, one Canadian, who are, in fact, thinking of suicide because their pain meds are being denied. And the remarkable story of a young man named Dwight Ballantyne, a story of a First Nation determination and success. You will not want to miss that. They were in town last night, and it was 194 of the Raps against the Bucks. How many people thought after the first two games of the series that it was going to be over? I know everybody in the United States thought it's done. Those Raptors are going to fold in four like they've done before. And I thought first game, they should have won. So this isn't going to end all that quickly, and now we know what happened. And I liked uh, the, uh, the response from one of the players, one of the Raptors players, after they won uh, game five in Milwaukee. He was asked, um, do you think you can win four in a row against the Bucks?" He said, we don't have to win four in a row. We just have to win one. And that, of course, last night they did. Again, the score was 194, looking at Jurassic Park. Place was just bedlam, absolute bedlam. And I'm watching young people in this country, and they're really getting into basketball, or they're not, not getting into basketball, they're in basketball in a major, major way. So now it's on to... The NBA Finals and uh, the uh, Golden State uh, is coming into town uh, with Steph Curry and uh, that all-star lineup. And, of course, I was listening to some American radio again this morning, and uh, their raps are going to be gone in four. No, they're not. Not a chance. Ron Foxcroft, back with us, was with us yesterday. Foxy was at the game last night, ranked on the list of the top 50 sports officials by Referee Magazine, the only Canadian to have refereed NCAA Division I basketball, including uh, Michael Jordan's first game. He did the Sweet 16, also uh, refereed the Montreal Olympic gold medal game, and the inventor of the Fox 40 whistle, which is used by all the referees in the NBA, the NFL, the NHL, the CFL, the NCAA, and the World Cup of Soccer. So, Fox, at the beginning of the season, did you think the Raptors would get this far? You know, Roy, I'm going to have to be honest. When they made that trade for uh, Kawhi Leonard, I thought, you know what? This team has the... uh, has the ingredients to be in the top four. Uh, honestly, I felt they could be in the top four, but uh, of course the uh, 
the benchmark of championship teams is the Golden State Warriors, as you said, with Steph Curry and company, who actually grew up in Toronto. And and I think it'll be a, a great memory for him and a great opportunity to come home where he grew up as a kid because his dad, Del Curry, played uh, for a while for the Toronto Raptors. But no, I, honestly, Roy, I didn't think they'd be able to go this far. For example, they beat an amazing basketball team in the Philadelphia 76ers. And it goes without saying, the Milwaukee Bucks, they are an excellent team, well-coached, well-drilled. They have the uh, the Greek freak, Giannis and Lopez, and uh, they, they had enormous talent to beat Milwaukee Bucks, who actually ended up to have the best record in the NBA ahead of the uh, Golden State Warriors. No, I did not honestly think they were going to. Did you think did you think last night when they had that 15 point lead, the third quarter, that it was over? Because I was I was watching and I thought this is not done. I had a feeling the Raps were going to come back and win it. Even when they were down that much. I did, too, and I'll tell you why. Um, Not many calls were going in favor of the Toronto Raptors in the first half. And I thought, you know, the coach is getting a little bit ticked off, and he needs to reel it in and, and focus on coaching the team and not thinking about the calls. And sure as shooting, Roy, uh, when I thought they were going to make the comeback, one of the very early calls in the second half was a technical foul against the Milwaukee coach. And I, I felt the pendulum was swinging. And I'm not suggesting, Roy, for one second, there's even up calls. <laughs> what, and we what, talked about that yesterday. Yeah, we did talk <laughs> about that yesterday. What I'm saying is specifically, and I want to make this quite clear, calls tend to even themselves out. Uh, they, they don't get evened up by the refs because, as I said yesterday, we're not that smart or we'd be brain surgeons. So. Yeah, so, so let, let me ask you this. How would you judge the refereeing last night? There was a lot of going to the, uh, to the replay table. Yeah. Uh, well, a little education for your audience, Roy. There's 15 things that trigger going to the replay table for video review. And, um, you know, Roy, I felt the video review, the purpose of the video review is to get it correct. You know, there's only two types of calls, correct and incorrect. Not good and bad, correct and incorrect. And I felt um, later in the game, particularly in the fourth quarter, when there were certain long video reviews, Raptors only had about two or one remaining legal timeouts. I felt that that favored the Raptors because it it uh, point. they were able to gather some timeout strategy time during the video reviews. So if you put 50 referees into a room together and you ask the 50 referees, do you favor or do you not favor instant replay? And let's just take it beyond basketball. Let's talk about all the professional sports. Do you favor more instant replay or less instant replay? What's the majority answer going to be? Well, 50 are going to say, give me instant replay because we don't want to decide the game with an incorrect call. Like we saw in uh, in New Orleans. Uh, New Orleans. And uh, you know what? You never want to see that again. The Los Angeles Rams and New Orleans, and that could have been avoided. 
uh, had there been a legal challenge like there is in the CFL. All they had to do is look north and say, hey, you know, they have legal video challenges in the CFL. They, they've got the benchmark. But anyway, going back to that, Roy, the, the one thing that referees just can't stand is if their call is incorrect late in the game, in the, in, and you have to really increase your intensity, Roy, in the last two minutes of the game. If your call incorrect decides that game, that's a bad thing. And I lived with that, Roy, once. I, I missed a uh, goaltending in triple overtime on a last-second shot. <laughs> and 25 years later... Once a month, I still have a bad dream because I decided that game on an incorrect call. So how does that happen? How does it happen that you miss, and you're, you're one of the top 50 referees, not only in basketball, but in sports, period, uh, globally. How does that, how does it happen? How does it happen that in, in New Orleans, the New Orleans game, that the entire crew didn't call what was clearly uh, it was such an obvious pass interference. How does it? How does that happen to a referee? There's two things to that answer, Roy. Communications. Uh, I looked at that call and I felt that somebody on that crew had to display immense leadership and communicate with the crew chief and say, "Listen, guys, we have got to have a conversation, however long it takes." Uh, number two, Roy, you can miss a call with a temporary lack of concentration. And, and you know, the secret to good officiating, when you go out there for two hours or whatever it is for three hours, you can have nothing else on your mind. You have to have 100% total concentration, nothing else going on in your life. And for one second, um, your concentration level can escape you, and, and that's possible, Roy, because we're not computers. We're human beings. Right. And that's how an incorrect call, or, Roy, it can also be positioning, uh, uh, making calls out of your primary, uh, reaching for calls in your secondary position, and so on. Uh, and that's why you have more than one official. The other's supposed to help out, right? You're supposed to have yeah, somebody basketball, step up and say. We used to do it with two two officials. Right. And now they got three. And you know what, Roy? Um, just let you in on a little secret. We're experimenting now with four. Uh, I'd like to see that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to see that because that's a lot of it's it's a lot of court to cover, and the game's faster than I think than it's ever been. Oh, yes. And there's so much activity going on. Plus, you've got another sixteen or 17,000 referees in the stands. Yes. And, and you know, you can't ex escape the level of intensity. Everybody in the world now knows the importance of these upcoming games. For the, It's the NBA final. It's the world championship to basketball. These are the greatest basketball players that ever laced up a shoe. And... Uh, uh, the the importance is is uh, immense. Also, too, uh, with the referees, um, if they know their job, they just know that they have to get prepared, and and their intensity of preparation goes up another octave. Uh, okay. Roy. It really has to, at this level, because of the importance of the situation. Okay, Fox, I have to take a break in a second, but I have to ask you this question so I don't forget. A lot's been said about Drake. And his antics on the on, on 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 the floor. 
up and down, up and down. Right. Uh, you know, you, see, you saw you were there yep. last night, right? Yep. We, we saw it on TV. You saw it live. Right. Why Why do the referees put up with that? I mean, I, I found it entertaining, and I think it's good for the Raptors, but does, do the referees have the option to say to a fan, sit down? There's no question about that. And and you know what? I like what great uh, Drake represents. You know, he's he's all in. He's all in for the country. He's all in for the Raptors. But there is a line, Roy. You know, there is a line, and you can't cross that line. It's called crossing the decorum line. Stay off the court. That's the the only thing I would say about that. And um, I think there'll be a conversation at the NBA headquarters about the uh, the decorum and rules for fans in in particular i don't want to blame drake because other people do venture onto the floor but there's a lot of security and there's a lot of rules and uh drake does a great thing promoting canada and the raptors but stay off the floor so you removed mr knight or coach knight from a game because he got a little mouthy with you. Yeah, yeah. He said to me, uh, Canadians can't play this game, and you can't referee that game. And uh, I, I tossed him. And, Roy, a lot's <laughs> happened since those days. Canadians can really play this game. There's no question about that. And Canadians can really referee this game a lot better than I ever referee. Well, I know that people still talk about the time that you hurled out uh, or tossed out Bobby Knight, and there was something about a chair flying across the floor, too. Yeah, there yeah. was, and yeah. a little police escort back to Indianapolis, which <laughs> took a couple of hours. Yeah, so we've seen a few exciting games, Roy, including yeah. the game last night. Yeah, well, I remember you calling me once after doing a game at Madison Square Gardens. I was sitting at home, Yep. and you called me, and you said, they're chasing us. We're in a rented car. We're trying to get to the airport, and the fans are chasing us. So life is interesting. I remember going over the George Washington Bridge, and the fans were after us, Roy. Can you imagine? And us referees, we're, as you know, we're very nice guys. You are very nice guys. <laughs> Just once in a while, you miss one as far as the fans are concerned. Okay, so what's going to happen with Kawhi Leonard? This is a question everybody's asking. Everyone has an opinion. Is he staying, or do you think he'll get, he'll go? You know, Roy, I got to answer this with a a, a biased slant, and um, I I also want to qualify right now on your national show. I have no inside track. I do not know, but you know, I'm I'm also a proud Canadian, and I think Kawhi Leonard is is an excellent athlete. Maybe arguably top five basketball players currently in the world. You know, you've got LeBron, you've got Steph, you've got Kevin Durant, and so on. But maybe he he might be the very best. And I think it would be great for the country, for the game, for the Raptors, for him to stay. And, and I really believe we, as Canadians, we, we live in a wonderful country, Roy. Now remember, I've traveled. But how do we? But how do we? Sell, but how do we sell that to him? Well, I was going to get to that. We have a responsibility. The fans have a responsibility, and the Raptor management have a responsibility to make it very difficult for Kauai to leave Toronto, to leave the Toronto Raptors. As we all know, this is the best country in the world. 
And, and you know, when I was named to the Order of Canada back in December... Congratulations uh, again on that. It was a very emotional time because I'm a proud Canadian and proud to be here. And, and I say that qualified by... I spent 25 years of my life traveling to the United States, a wonderful country, no borders in sport, wonderful country, but the best part was always coming home, coming home to Canada. So I reiterate... We as Canadians have that responsibility to make it very difficult for Kawhi Leonard to leave Toronto, Canada, and the Toronto Raptors. Yeah, we do. And uh, I I don't doubt that it can be done. I mean, there's a lot to be offered. This country has a lot to offer. The Raptors have a lot to offer. He knows he's uh, he's extremely valued. He's loved in Toronto. Uh, Does he want to go back to Los Angeles? I guess we'll find out in the uh, not-too-distant future. Thank you for everything you do for this country, Fox. Uh, you've you've given so much. You've done so much. You continue to do so much for Canada. And that Order of Canada was um, was so well earned. And I should have mentioned that earlier myself. Thank you very much, Roy. And I love your show on national t- on national radio. And and you do a great thing, uh, broadcasting the news and public affairs right across uh, Canada, coast to coast. You do a great job. Okay. Thanks, Fox. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Ron Foxcroft. 100 to 94, 100 to 94, and you know, again, what they're saying on American sports radio is, oh, those Raptors are going to be gone in four. Where have we heard that before? So you removed Mr. Knight, or Coach Knight, from a game because... He got a little mouthy with you. Yeah, yeah. He said to me, uh, Canadians can't play this game, and you can't referee that game. And uh, I I tossed him. And, Roy, a lot's <laughs> happened since those days. Canadians can really play this game. There's no question about that. And Canadians can really referee this game a lot better than I ever referee. Well, I know that people still talk about the time that you hurled out uh, or tossed out Bobby Knight, and there was something about a chair flying across the floor, too. Yeah, there was, and a little police escort back to Indianapolis, which (laughs) took a couple of hours. Yeah, so we've seen a few exciting games, Roy, including the game last night. Yeah, well, I remember you calling me once after doing a game at Madison Square Gardens. I was sitting at home, Yep. and you called me, and you said, they're chasing us. We're in a rented car. We're trying to get to the airport, and the fans are chasing us. So life is interesting. I remember going over the George Washington Bridge, and the fans were after us, Roy. Can you imagine? And us referees, we're, as you know, we're very nice guys. You are very nice guys. <laughs> Just once in a while, you miss one as far as the fans are concerned. Okay, so what's going to happen with Kawhi Leonard? This is a question everybody's asking. Everyone has an opinion. Is he staying, or do you think he'll he'll go? You know, Roy, I got to answer this with a a, a biased slant, and um, I I also want to qualify right now on your national show. I have no inside track. I do not know, but you know, I'm I'm also a proud Canadian, and I think Kawhi Leonard is is an excellent athlete. Maybe arguably top five basketball players currently in the world. You know, you've got LeBron, you've got Steph, you've got Kevin Durant, and so on. But maybe he he might be the very best. And I think it would be great for the country, for the game, for the Raptors, for him to stay. And, and I really believe we, as Canadians, we, we live in a wonderful country, Roy. 
Now remember, I've traveled. But how do we? But how do we sell? But how do we sell that to him? Well, I was going to get to that. We have a responsibility. The fans have a responsibility, and the Raptor management have a responsibility to make it very difficult for Kawhi to leave Toronto, to leave the Toronto Raptors. As we all know, this is the best country in the world. And, and you know, when I was named to the Order of Canada back in December... Congratulations uh, again on that. It was a very emotional time because I'm a proud Canadian and proud to be here. And, and I say that qualified by... I spent 25 years of my life traveling to the United States, a wonderful country, no borders in sport, wonderful country, but the best part was always coming home, coming home to Canada. So I reiterate... We as Canadians have that responsibility to make it very difficult for Kawhi Leonard to leave Toronto, Canada, and the Toronto Raptors. Yeah, we do. And uh, I, I don't doubt that it can be done. I mean, there, there's a lot to be offered. This country has a lot to offer. The Raptors have a lot to offer. He knows he's, he's extremely valued. He's loved in Toronto. Uh, does he want to go back to Los Angeles? I guess we'll find out in the uh, not-too-distant future. Thank you for everything you do for this country, Fox. Uh, you've you've given so much. You've done so much. You continue to do so much for Canada. And that Order of Canada was um, was so well-earned, and I should have mentioned that earlier myself. Thank you very much, Roy. And I love your show on national, t- on national radio, and, and you do a great thing uh, broadcasting the news and public affairs right across Canada. Uh, Canada, coast to coast. You do a great job. Okay. Thanks, Fox. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Ron Foxcroft. 100 to 94. 100 to 94. And, you know, again, what they're saying on American sports radio is, oh, those Raptors are going to be gone in four. Where have we heard that before? My interview that I uh, aired live and exclusively with John Letts. Last February, in fact, we've spoken twice with the father, Canadian father of Jack Letts, dubbed Jihadi Jack by British media. Jihadi Jack because at 23 years of age, he left the UK against the wishes of his parents and went to Syria where he lived in Raqqa with ISIS. And Mr. Letts insisted on this program that his son was never a member of ISIS, never joined ISIS. But he lived in Raqqa for some three years. How that happens, I don't know. And as I said to John Letts on the air, my gut feeling is, my sense is, that he did join ISIS. If you're living with them for three years, how does that not happen? Anyway, we're going to play you some clips from that interview. And uh, joining us to share his thoughts on what we'll hear from John Letts is Scott Newark, former Alberta prosecutor and post-9-11 terrorism advisor to the federal and Ontario governments, also senior policy advisor to a federal minister for public safety. Um, So before we uh, talk to Scott, let me play you two clips, audio clips from my conversation with John Letts. This one deals with why his son went to Syria. First of all, when he went... Um, when he left Oxford, I, 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 the caliphate hadn't been even declared, and not many people knew about ISIS. I mean, we're, we were kind of up on political events, but I didn't really know what ISIS was very much. Uh, I think the concept of a caliphate, 
um, as much as we might think that's a horrible idea, or many of us do. I mean, I'm not a very religious fellow myself, um, but uh, I think there are a lot of Muslims who thought that perhaps there was some genuinely Islamic State was being created. And according to Jack and many people, I think, who have very strong Islamic views, that if there is, according to the Quran, from what I understand, if there is a genuine Islamic State, um, well, Islamic society, that is the duty of a, of a Muslim to live in it. Now, Jack has OCD. You've probably read that, too. Very intense child. When he gets into something, he's really into it. And he learned Arabic in six months, and he decided that this... I think his Islam had a lot to do with his OCD. I mean, we don't have time to go into that. But, um, I mean, I had no, we had no, obviously no idea he was going. He just went to learn Arabic in, in Kuwait. Okay, so there's the first part of that clip. It goes on for quite a while. I didn't realize we had a two-minute clip up. But anyway, there's John Letts talking about his son going to Raqqa, going to Syria. And we should mention that his son is also a Canadian citizen because Mr. Letts is Canadian. So his son is dual Canadian and uh, and uh, British citizen. So, Scott, you've heard the whole interview. Scott Newark with us. You've heard the whole interview in the past. When you hear John Letts again now talking about his son, what are you hearing? Um, somebody who's maybe not one of the best parents in the world. You know, that is, however, distinct from being somebody who is committing a terrorism offense, which is what he and his wife are now facing trial for. You know, I, I think this is a, um, a very sad story. Uh, he uh, referenced uh, his son's uh, obsessive-compulsive disorder, and that appears to be a reality that there's some significant mental health issues. But, um, you know, not trying to intervene to prevent his son from becoming radicalized, I think, is a legitimate issue. But the, uh, the reality is that his son did go, got into some difficult circumstances, and then was trying to get, uh, apparently was trying to get a home which required money being sent. And there's some details of, about that, which we can get into, but that's the essence of what his parents are now facing. Let me, let me play you a couple of seconds of what John Letts said to us about sending money to his son. Now, remember, this was done in February. This interview aired in February of last year. It was the first time that he'd spoken to anybody in media in North America or outside of the U.K. because there was a publication ban right. in the U.K. at the time. But he, his lawyers felt he could speak with me. Here's what he said about sending his son money. The charges are that um, uh, the police believe that there was a risk that some of the money we tried to send might have been used for terrorism. And the judge in court last week, or two weeks ago, said these people were told they could send this money to, their, to help get their son out because their son's life was in danger. And it was said in court by the judge. So what he had told us, Scott, at the time was the police had given him advice, as best I remember this interview, the police, and I, I remember it quite well, the police had given him advice that he could send his son money, but then he was already being investigated for supporting a terrorist group. So what do we have empathy for a father who wants to help his son, or do we look at this, this situation and say, you should have known? Well, I personally, I think virtually all of us, if we had a child that were in those circumstances, would do everything we possibly could to try to uh, rescue him, including sending money. Um, that, that, you know, it, it may have been not the 
uh, best example of parenting that the the kid ended up there. But I, seriously, I don't imagine anybody would condemn them for trying to get their uh, son home. And in that part of the world, you end up usually having to use uh, human smugglers who uh, charge money. The thing that I found very interesting about that, though, at the time when I remember listening to it and him, him saying, you know, the police told him it was okay, um, he, if you remember, uh, he actually uh, sent a letter uh, to his, um, after that uh, interview, he sent a letter to members of parliament, and I dug up the letter, and it kind of contradicts what he just said in that uh, clip. And it was members of parliament, members of the Canadian parliament. Yes. After much consultation with the experts in police, we were given official permission to send Jack $1,000, sorry, £1,000, $1,700 Canadian to escape from Syria. We have proof of this in writing. But in his letter, he goes on to say what he doesn't say in the interview. Two days later, after Jack had come out of hiding, the police cruelly informed us that they had changed their minds. We were devastated, and when we tried to send him money, we were arrested. Okay, so if it is accurate that the police actually originally said, yes, you can go ahead and do this, um, you know, that of itself would be a defense to the charges. Now, if the police did change their minds and the parents afterwards sent the money anyway, that would mitigate the uh, defense that is uh, potentially there. But it does offer an insight into, in my opinion, and I, I, I fully you know, acknowledge that I don't know all of the details of this, this is a case that I don't think really belongs in a criminal courtroom for prosecution. Of yeah, you know, I had the same. I had the same thought. I talked to the father off the air as well as on the air. This is a dad who cares about his kid, yeah. and he's trying to help him. And he'd already spent time in prison. He was in prison for, uh, um, uh, I think, a week, possibly two weeks. Yeah, I think so, yeah. In London, in and he described those circumstances in the interview were very unpleasant sort of situation, but. You know, what parent doesn't want to send money, doesn't want to support their kid? But at the same time, boy, I tell you, you get into the empathy versus versus reality, I guess. Um, What what at the same time, your son is in Raqqa living with ISIS. You put the two together. It's hard for me to say, hard for me to believe that he's just there living surrounded by ISIS and isn't part of it. Yeah, I I agree. But that doesn't change, you know, the parental instinct, which is to help rescue your son and get him back to safety. Okay, there's there's lots of legitimate questions about, you know, whether or not there were things that could have been done to us so as to prevent him from going there and whether the parents, you know, have some responsibility for that. But it's an entirely different thing to say trying to send uh, uh, or trying to get your uh, son rescued by sending money merits criminal prosecution. Let me play you just 25 seconds here, Scott, of John Letts, the father of Jack Letts, Jihadi Jack, talking about Global Affairs Canada being in touch with the family. Uh, We have loads of information from Global Affairs saying we're going to do everything we can, also the Canadian High Commission to begin with. Then it went over to Global Affairs. It's very, very clear. They said as soon as Jack, certainly as soon as he gets out of Syria um, and gets to a third country, then we have full consular help for him, um, you know, and the British might also then um, work with them to get him to a safe third country and eventually back to the UK or to Canada. So there's what he said about that. He said more about it later, but that's the only part we'll play today. Does, it, does this start to dovetail with... 
uh, the federal government considering a proactive policy to deal with Canadian jihadis detained abroad. I mean, you've recommended that for some time. Yeah, I actually wrote about that in detail last uh, year. As you remember, there was some just really excellent reporting by Stuart uh, Bell from uh, Global News. Absolutely. He actually went over there and interviewed the, uh, the Canadian detainees, the jihadis, their families. Uh, you know, he, in effect, did what the RCMP couldn't figure out how to do. Um, and um, I wrote a very detailed analysis of, you know, we need a proactive strategy on this. And just uh, relatively recently, a couple of weeks ago, it appears as though the federal government may be starting to think in that direction. And as it turns out, uh, Turkey has apparently offered uh, that uh, they will assist, they will accept these people coming out of Syria so that they can be then safely processed out of Turkey, because that was one of the reasons why uh, Canada said that we couldn't get involved because the uh, situation in Syria was too dangerous on the ground. And further complicating this is that these, all of, to my knowledge, all of the Canadian detainees, the jihadis and their families and the kids, they're all held by the Kurds, which although it's in the territory of Syria, that country is a complete you know, mess. It's the uh, Muddle East, as uh, we like to call it. And so the Sir- it's not the Syrian government. It's this other entity, and um, that just simply complicates uh, the situation. They okay, have so- made it very clear that the Kurds have, that they want countries to take these uh, their citizens back. Right. I frankly agree with, and as you know, I don't agree with your, your former uh, uh, roommate and golf uh, f- uh, friend, uh, Donald Trump. Uh, I don't agree with him very often, but this is something that President Trump has been saying, is that countries need to step up and take their uh, citizens back. I have to say this now, because everybody's going to believe you. I've never played golf with Donald Trump. <laughs> Stop that stuff, because I don't want to answer a thousand emails tonight. Not that I wouldn't, particularly if Tiger Woods was part of it. I'd be there. Yeah, well, but but know, look, let's go. Model. You heard what, what John Led said about Global Affairs Canada being in touch with him. What yeah. do you make of that? Because that was February of last year. And those contacts would have been made before that interview. Yeah. Well, the, uh, the British, in my opinion, have been uh, very inappropriately resistant to taking their uh, citizens. They don't want John, uh, they don't want Jack Letts back. They've no. said it very clearly. They don't want him back in the UK. That's correct. That's correct. In fact, one of their ministers actually um, had said that they, it would be a better solution to uh, find them and kill them over there. They, they ended well, up having to backtrack. Scott, that. the SAS, which is their ultra. Um, uh, the, their best special forces unit, along with the SBS, the Navy version, they, uh, the commander of the special forces unit, SAS, told the SAS members finding and killing uh, British jihadis who are member uh, British members of ISIS is the most important um, uh, mission this regiment's had in seventy five years. The, the, the situation, however, on the ground has uh, changed. Has changed, and uh, they're not. Uh, with uh, ISIS effectively having lost control, you've now got these people in custody, uh, and the issue then becomes, what do you do with them? Okay, and the, the Kurds have also made it relatively clear that uh, they don't have the money, the resources, or the inclination 
to prosecute and detain them, so they want to let them go. And ironically, you know, most of these um, ISIS fighters came into uh, Syria uh, through Turkey, and now Turkey, uh, oops, you know, we've changed our position on this. And that if they are able to be delivered to that country, it would facilitate the return of them. But the country of origin or the country of citizenship that this guy happens to have would then have to agree to take them back. And that's that's the constitutional issue, Roy, is that um, Canadian citizens have a right to re-enter Canada, but there is no constitutional obligation on the government to facilitate them coming back to Canada. Yeah, and this government has mishandled this whole issue I think so too, yeah. badly. Do you want to hear? Do you want to hear a few seconds about uh, John Letts telling me sure. why his son is not a member of ISIS? Sure. Let's have a listen to that. You know, people can say I'm just a father in denial, or I'm naive, or anything like that. But no, there's never been any evidence to show that. If there was, I'd love to know it, because if he really was a member of ISIS, I'd be the first to queue up and condemn him. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I don't know that they necessarily, uh, that you'd have to make that determination based on whether he had a membership card or not. Yeah, no, I'm just saying it's an interesting comment from his dad. It is, but I mean... I feel sorry. You know, I feel sorry for his father. You know, who has, uh, obviously wants to get his son into safety. Yeah. Uh, let me just get away from this for a second and get on to another issue because we have about a minute and a half left with you, and I want to talk about want you to talk about this. There was a rural crime report from the House oh, yeah. National Security Committee and the Conservative Minority Report, and you were involved in that. What's it about? Well, essentially, it's a follow-up to what was done in Alberta. I went out to uh, to help the uh, United Conservative Party. I was asked to help them put together this rural crime report. And it was a conservative uh, federal member of parliament who had made a similar application to cause the Public Safety Committee to do a study on rural crime. So, yes, I helped them put together the report based on a lot of the work that I'd done out in Alberta. And I went and I testified on the, uh, at the committee on the report. And, you know, I made, you know, you know me, I mean, I made very precise recommendations and specifics about things that could be done based on the information that I'd received. And um, I got the impression at the time that the Liberals were not really interested in doing anything about it just from when I was at the committee. Mm -hmm. But they, uh, just this uh, week gone by, they uh, released, the committee released its official report, which is just, you know, blah, 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 oh, gee, this is complicated. Maybe it's the province's responsibility. And so in outrage, the Conservatives issued a, you know, short but detailed uh, minority report expressing the need to take okay. some specific action. You're the most... Uh, just simply, I think, a dis... You know, different governments yeah. have different priorities, yeah. and so be it. That's Absolutely. the government's uh, choice. But uh, public safety is obviously not a priority. This okay, my friend. Government. You are the most... You're the best research person I know, really, on 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 crime issues, on national issues. Nobody does it, nobody but does it better than you. People and you talk to the people who are being victimized, yep. and you get the truth. Okay. Got to go, buddy. Thanks so much for the time today. Okay, Roy. Scott Bye-bye. Newark, former Crown Attorney in Alberta, uh, adjunct professor at Simon Fraser University. Let's uh, talk about what's going on in Britain and uh, really in Europe as well. Because the European parliamentary elections are taking place. We're wrapping up today. And in Britain, the Brexit chaos continues with Theresa May, whose voice you just heard, uh, stepping aside, or she's going to be stepping aside, as the British Prime Minister. And joining us on the program, uh, back with us, Professor Alan Sked, a professor emeritus at the London School of Economics. He's the founder of UKIP, the political party which gave rise to Brexit. He's also the author of 10 books on British and European history. Professor Sked, thank you for the time, history being made now. 
Uh, yes, indeed. Um, we've got the European election results coming in. We've got uh, uh, Theresa May being forced to give up the premiership and uh, starting a process uh, uh, in Britain of a new prime minister being elected. So, um, yeah, everything's quite fun. Fun, and is it a constitutional crisis at all? Is it just is it is it rampant chaos? What's going on? Well, it might turn into a constitutional crisis. We're not there just yet. Um, there's a crisis for the Conservative Party. That's the first crisis. Um, in the European elections, the results of which will be released in the next few hours, uh, it looks as if the, the ruling party, the Tories, uh, Britain's oldest party and probably the, most, the oldest and most successful in Western Europe, uh, will come fourth or fifth in the poll and might not even get 10% of the vote. Uh, if opinion poll predictions are anything to go by, the Labour Party, the main opposition, will be well done as well, and it's only predicted to get about 10 or 12 percent of the votes. So the whole party system could change. Of course, the European elections are sort of a sort of one-off thing. I mean, they're probably the last ones we'll ever take part in, I hope. And, um, you know, most people never bothered very much about them. But it's been seen that these lot have been seen as a kind of mini-referendum on Brexit. So uh, that's the importance of it. What do the British people really want? And how much division is there, in opinion, on leaving the EU in Scotland, Northern Ireland and Wales? Let me leave England out of the equation for a moment. But what about the other three? How much division of opinion is there? Well, the whole country is divided. I mean, Scotland voted 60-40 um, to remain in the European Union, Wales 52% sort of to come out, and in Northern Ireland, I think it was sort of 40, 52% to stay in. So uh, really, I mean, the whole country as a whole, the UK as a whole, saw a vote of 40 2 percent to 58 percent, sorry, 52% to 48% to come out. Uh, and, you know, if referendums or anything go by, we go by the majority. I mean, when Wales had a referendum on home rule um, or devolution, it was as it's called, um, the majority was not 0.8%, but, you know, it got, it is what it parliament, is. It got, got home rule and nobody questioned it. How is this going to... And let me ask you to look into, gaze into a crystal ball. How does this, well, let's start with the question, how does it proceed? Is there going to be another British general election and a second Brexit referendum or not? I don't think there'll be a second Brexit referendum because the, you know, that that would, I mean, I, the Tory party's in power and it would have to um, sanction that. And that would be a suicide uh, vote by the Conservative Party. Um, so I don't really foresee a second uh, referendum. As for a general election, well, under our five-year Parliament Act, another one isn't due until 2022, uh, and I can't see the Tories being particularly uh, enthusiastic about having one before then, given the very low standing uh, in opinion polls right now. Um, what's going to happen is a new leader uh, of the Conservative Party who will become automatically Prime Minister uh, will try and uh, either have a, a Brexit through a deal or no deal, and it looks as if it will have to be no deal, um, and then try and unite the country and stay in power until 2022. Um, there are some mechanisms whereby 
uh, if he were to lose a vote of confidence in the House of Commons, there might have to be a general election. Mm-hmm. Um, and some very die-hard Remain MPs who don't want us to leave the European Union, uh, Tory MPs are threatening that if the, the new Prime Minister does go for no deal, which is quite likely because the European Union is saying it won't uh, consider any other deal except the one that's been rejected by Parliament three times already, uh, that if the new Prime Minister were to ignore that and go for no deal, then these diehard Tories would vote to bring down the government. So now, if... And we understand the, the if you're going to bet some money on who's going to be the next prime minister of Britain, bet on Boris Johnson. So if he, if that's true, and if he becomes the next prime minister, does he have enough charisma, clout, call it what you will, to pull the party into line and do what he wants them to do? Probably, but uh, he, he himself is uh, loathed by uh, the Remainers um, and by other people because he's a sort of larger-than-life personality who um, very often doesn't care about what he says. So um, he's made a lot of enemies, and the European uh, Union uh, leaders hate him because uh, he, he used to make fun of them when he was Foreign Secretary. Um, I, I think he could probably. I can't see anybody else um, really being in a position to do it. Whoever gets the, the the leadership and becomes prime minister, I think will have to be a Brexiteer, uh, someone who's been in May's cabinet and has stuck by May right to the very end when she more or less was forced out. Will have very great difficulties uh, explaining why they stuck by her. So I think it must be someone who. Uh, didn't stick by, and that means uh, someone who resigned from the cabinet. Uh, and so that leaves Boris and David Davis isn't running, uh, Dominic Raab, Esther McVeigh, uh, Andrea Leadsom, and uh, you know, and these are true Brexiteers, all of whom, sorry, but all of whom say that, um, you know, if the European Union won't renegotiate, then they'll take us out without a deal. So um, what about what, what about in the minute we have left, what about um, the, the Brexit party, this new Brexit party, which is led by Nigel well, Farage? I know you're not a big fan of his, but uh, what, what's likely to happen with them? Are they are they just around for the uh, EU election and then they're gone, or are they going well, to be a... That, that's one big question. Um, some of the leaders and members say it's just for the European elections. Farage, of course, would like to take it into the general election. But remember... Um, whereas they're, they're all united on the European issue, they've got no policies on anything else. And nobody knows clearly what they stand for, and there are some candidates there, prominent members of it, who've got rather dodgy past. I mean, former communists and uh, <laughs> other ones who, um, you know, are sort of mini-celebrities, but aren't really seen as... It's a mess. ...people politically. It's a It's a mess. It's a mess. I mean, just... It's a mess. It's a mess. It really, really is a mess. Professor Skid, thank you so much for the time, and uh, I'll be back in touch with you, and perhaps we... (laughs) Oh, well, perhaps things will clear up. (laughs) Perhaps. Thank you very much. We have a mess here, too. Thank you so much for your time. (laughs) Thank you. Bye-bye. Professor Alan Skid from the London School of Economics, Professor Emeritus. It's a mess. I mean, it's worse than here. In its own way.
chronic pain or agony patients are the collateral damage of the opioid crisis. Affecting 10% of the population, chronic pain for those who suffer most and whose prescription opioid medications are arbitrarily slashed or completely refused creates, as a, a doctor told us on the air, social isolation, depression, and can and does lead to suicide. Well, this week, Julia from California tweeted, I'm going to read you the tweet in a moment. And then there's Graham, who's 31 years old and Canadian, who sent me an email some months ago. We talked to Graham previously on the air briefly. He'll talk to us again in a minute. Let me read you uh, Julia's tweet. So sad. This week I've been in such severe pain. I went looking for heroin. I never imagined myself a retired nurse ever considering injecting anything. I'm that desperate. My other choice was suicide. I saw a new PM or pain medicine doctor this week in another futile attempt to secure legal meds. And Graham sent me this email. I'm 31 in constant chronic pain from chronic Lyme disease. My doctor's retiring, and I've never abused my drugs in my entire life. I know when my doctor has his last day, I will lose quality of life, and I think I'm going to die and I'll cry all day every day in the fear of what will happen to me when he retires. If I don't have pain relief, I can't stay still for more than five seconds. I look at the sun these days and I feel like this is my last spring on earth. He's 31. Hi, Julia. Hi, Graham. Hi, Roy. How are you doing? Well, I'm I'm doing fine, but uh, Julia, your your tweet was absolutely... uh, it was devastating to read. Can you describe what, what's going on with your health? What are you facing? So I am what's considered a legacy patient. So I am a lifetime user of pain management drugs. I'm also a retired surgical nurse. And I was born to a mother who had heart damage that she didn't realize she had uh, from rheumatic fever. So I was born two weeks overdue. I was born with um, a heart murmur. I weighed only five pounds, and I had a burst effect to my left foot, which is now just riddled with arthritis and collapsed. And I'm in pain every single day. I was also a, a uh, training for the Olympics as an ice skater, six hours a day, six days a week, and I have complex regional pain syndrome and seronegative rheumatoid arthritis that I'm trying to manage. And I'm currently with a physician who is railroading me off my medications because he doesn't want to write prescriptions any longer, and I'm unable to get into a pain management clinic because they're all full. So this is, this is a destructive path for you, quite clearly, a destructive path for you. For how long were you on on prescription opioids that helped you with quality of life? How many years? So I was on, I was maintained on high-dose methadone, which they prescribed to addicts, and I was on them for 20 dose constant years, which means that I didn't change my dose for 20 years. And in that time, my family didn't realize the amount of pain I was in, and my friends didn't even realize I was sick. I was able to have a high level of functioning and a high level of quality of life, and now my quality of life is destroyed. I'm nearly homebound, attending medical appointments only, and I'm unable to volunteer in my community. 
Okay, let me social. let me let me let me talk to uh, Graham here for a moment as well. Um, Graham, we talked, I believe, in March. Is when you sent me that uh, that email. How are things for you now? Well, my doctor retired about uh, a couple of weeks ago, three weeks ago, and uh, seen if I've seen three new doctors since and I can't even get past the first five minutes of talking to these guys they just they, they see opiates and they just run they, they, they don't they really don't care if you need them or not or what your history says they just don't care they just do not want to deal with opiates they don't and they it doesn't matter they just don't want to and there's people with the most unbelievable pain conditions that it really no one the doctors don't care it really doesn't matter how much pain you're in and now there's so many people with cancer that are going home without without opiates too um it's somewhere around 90 percent and it's just they don't they don't care they only care about themselves and they they feel too afraid to help anyone that's taking opiates. What is, not, they don't care that they're about what, the... What is going to happen to you if you don't get the prescription that you've had for years? And you told me that last time we talked. I, I, don't, I don't know, and I don't understand. It's just a, a damn pill that I've been taking for 10 years, and there's never been a problem, and without it... What's the pain like? You said you can't sit still for five seconds. It must be horrific. It's, it's 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 unbelievably horrible because the pain is bad, but it causes me to not to keep it forces me to keep on moving. I can't stay still for more than ten seconds, and the only way to stop the pain is to continue to move. Oh. And without without the relief, yes, I'm very scared what's going to happen. Julia, in, so we have Canada, the United States. We've talked about this in the past on this program in great detail. doesn't matter where you are geographically. The situation is the same, although in some cases, doctors are starting to fight back. The Some doctors in the AMA are fighting back. But your prospects are no not, not very positive either as far as, or not positive at all, as far as getting returning to the pain meds you took for years. No, they're not. And I'm. I at first I wondered that thought maybe I could get back to my former self if I just got my drugs back. But now I'm. I really question whether I can even do that. And that they, the whole opioid deprivation is like Graham said. It's just. It's extremely destructive. And no medical places are willing to help you and what is a patient to do when you're in such abject pain what you need is support we need more support from uh, from our industry for pain patients because you're collateral damage now and there are those clearly who don't care don't understand and don't care and that has to change i'm going to talk to you both again uh, very soon wanted to talk to you both today thanks for joining us today wish you all the very best and people need to know what's going on thanks so much Roy, for your help and okay. your support we'll stay we'll stay in touch for julia and graham okay. julia in california graham in canada there are stories that just inspire you and there are people who inspire you 
And when their stories inspire you, the person and their story, you know you've really got something. And so I just became aware in the last 48 hours about uh, Dwight Ballantyne and uh, the Ballantyne Project and Denise Trottier and uh, the Bird's Nest Project. And I, I, I'm so I'm honored to speak with them both, to have them both on the program with me from Maple Ridge, British Columbia. Dwight, hello. Good to talk to you. <clears throat> hello. How's it going? Doing great. How are you doing? No, I'm doing good. Just relax and have some coffee. Excellent. I'll be having one in about 10 minutes. <laughs> Denise, mm. good to speak with you. We spoke this morning by phone and uh, the other day. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having us. So let me just, I, I, frankly, I'd, there are so many places to begin with this story, but I'm going to do this. Dwight, let me start with, with uh, you're from the Montreal Lake Cree Nation in Saskatchewan. Uh, correct. That's where I'm from. Right. And there was a, a methamphetamine crisis exists there, and it's a particular threat to youth on the reserve. And, yeah, and and you didn't want to you, – you you had a drive. There was something – you have a drive to excel and succeed. It had to do with education and hockey. And so pick up the story for us, please. How did you, how did you make your way from – the uh, Montreal Lake uh, Reserve to Maple Creek and Denise Strachier. Oh, uh, well, I was very fortunate enough to have an opportunity come my way. Before I had the opportunity, I was like just lost in the environment and I always wanted to leave the reserve some way, but there was no opportunities that came. So uh, the Bird's Nest started up a program for education and I, I heard about it on social media. And after I heard about it, I started contacting them and that's how I got the opportunity to come this way. And you found your way to, to Maple Ridge, and what you've accomplished in the last three years is absolutely phenomenal. Denise, please pick up the story. How does how does Dwight come into your life? Um, the bird's nest started uh, because one of my son-in-laws, Andy Bird, had a cousin who was wanting to do something other than be on reserve, and so... Uh, he told us his cousin's story, and we said, okay, well, let's bring him out. So my husband and I offered our spare room, and we brought him out, and then we started learning more and hearing more stories about other people that might want an opportunity too. So we decided to create a nonprofit called The Bird's Nest, and we worked with uh, another good friend of ours, Natasha McDonald, and really we had no idea what we were doing, but we just knew we needed to do something. So Dwight was actually one of the people that... Um, I started talking to on Facebook Messenger, and he was the second person that came out in February 2016. And and been you've been together since. Yeah, yeah. He came out as part of the Bird's Nest College Prep Program. Well, at the time he just came out, there was no college prep program. But um, Natasha and I worked with our school district here, and we created a program, a one-year program, and then uh, started deciding to bring more people out. But he came out before that even happened. And, and out of this grew the Ballantine Project. Yes, that was, a, that was a kind of a transition that's happened over the last three years because of everything that Dwight's managed to accomplish. So, Dwight, talk to us, please, about what the Ballantine Project, this is you, uh, what, what you've accomplished, what you've done, and, and, and what it's been like to, to get there, because you have accomplished so much. Yeah, well, I... I actually don't know how it all happened. I just had, like, the right people beside me, and uh, Denise and her husband, like, are a very good support system, and they took me in as one of theirs after I moved here, and then having them in my life and other people kind of encouraged me to do more stuff, so I started just 
started off with hockey for me. Like I just wanted to get a job so I could play hockey here, and a lot of good things have happened through hockey, and that's pretty much where my success was. And I just had the drive to get myself to where I wanted to be because I I knew that if I was going to move away from my reserve, I wanted to like at least uh, make an impact with with myself and like try to do my best instead of doing what I always did. And I just wanted to like I just wanted to like basically basically just find a way for myself and just succeed in any way that I could possibly. And you'll act as a motivator for so many other young people, both on and off reserves. Uh, yeah. Yeah, with the Ballantine Project, yeah, we want to we make a way for them and give them the same opportunity that I've had because I know what it's like to be on a reserve and so many people want to leave, but they don't have the resources to leave. So the Ballantine Project is something that we uh, thought about right after I came back from uh, Europe when I went for a hockey tournament there in March. Uh, Denise, pick up uh, pick up the story here, please, because I I I, I, I was reading the uh, I'm lost for words. I was reading I was reading about Dwight, and I'm reading that uh, last November you were awarded the Premier's Indigenous Youth Excellence in Sport Award for your organization of the Hockey Skills and Leadership Program and the leadership you displayed in March of this year. You represent a Team Canada at an international hockey tournament in Europe where Team Canada won the tournament for the first time in 22 years. Uh, and now uh, you've launched the Ballantine Project to inspire individuals living on remote reserves to pursue an off-reserve life if they so desire. That is, um, I'm handing it back to you, Denise. Okay. So, yeah, since Dwight got here, he's uh, really worked hard, done incredible things. Um, the the Premier's Award came because um, we decided, as part of the Bird's Nest, to put together a hockey skills and leadership program that Dwight would be the director of, and he basically just put together the same training regime and everything that he had done in order to get where he had so far. Um, and we invited young adults from remote reserves to come and participate in that hockey program. And so that's why he won that award for the, he was mentoring them, training them, um, and he was honored with that award because of that, because of his leadership. And then, yeah, then he got an opportunity to play for Team Canada in Europe and uh, took that. So, yeah, it's been amazing to watch everything that he's managed to do in the last couple of years. So, Dwight, when you go back, and I, I'm, I'm assuming you go back to the reserve, you go and meet with your friends, you meet with your family, you meet with the folks that you've, you grew up with. How are they responding to what you've done? <clears throat> uh, when I, well, it's kind of weird. Like, when I go back home and tell them stuff, they kind of, it's hard, hard for them to believe that all the stuff that's been happening. And it's kind of hard to tell them because I, I honestly don't know how it happened myself, but I just keep going. And every time I tell them something good has happened, they're kind of like, they're, they're very proud, but they kind of just have no words. You know what I mean? So I think like I do. That. Yeah. So, but they're very proud and they always encourage me to keep going. So to my family back home, they, I wouldn't be here without them and their support. And I always call back every once in a while just to see how they're doing and tell them what's going on in my life. So they're very proud and that's pretty much it so because I don't really I don't really go home often but when I do I like spend a week or two just to catch up with them and go visit my grandma and just do a lot of stuff that I usually did back when I was home just see them how they're doing and talk to them yeah um, uh, D Denise this has to be really has to be uh, um, 
a motivator, uh, a sense of, there has to be a sense of, I can do this as well among uh, indigenous youth who might not see uh, uh, great opportunities on a daily basis, but they look at Dwight and if he can do it, I can do it. Yeah, for sure. And that's definitely part of it. Um, with the Ballantine Project, one of the really big things that we want to do is we want to start to create a conversation and some awareness because I think part of the problem is that um, there's not a lot of opportunity for these young adults that are on reserve, and I think it's mostly because people actually don't even know they're there. Yeah. They, they don't know that there's all this amazing talent and all these amazing people that are stuck in a place that um, they just don't get any attention. We sort of feel like they're invisible. So and they can they can do this on Facebook, right? Yeah, like what we're what we're doing is um, Dwight's girlfriend Alexis. She is putting together a social media campaign. Right. Um, it's called We See You, and what we're trying to do is get Canadians talking and make Canadians aware that all these young adults are out there and they have amazing talent and skills and all kinds of things that they could do. So where can folks go to uh, to see this now? Go on Facebook. Right. Go to the Ballantine Project okay. on Facebook. Right. And that's where we're posting everything that we're doing. Okay. And they can also participate and help us because um, what we want everybody to do yep. is hold a sign that says, we see you. Okay. Hashtag the Ballantine Project. We want as many people as, as we can to do that okay. so that we can start to make some awareness happen. All right. Thank you both so much. And I'm going to tweet this out and I'll put it on my uh, webpage as well. All the best, uh, uh, Dwight. Great on you. And Denise, thank you so very much. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.